It's good to be here with you all on this not the last sermon in the series. So uh, sorry for the misinformation for the nine, but for the 11, you guys get the real deal. So, uh, so our, our text today does span 41 verses, but we'll spend the bulk of our time in the, por- uh, in the, in the, por- in the portion that we just read. Uh, so thank you, Katie, for that. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll conclude our series next week. I had all this about the end of the, of the series, Tony. And so appreciate you tuning me up. So, uh, so as you turn your Bibles to chapter 10, uh, isn't it interesting that when guests come to town, you do all this stuff that you never, ever do in your own town? Is that, when, you, when, you have, when you have guests from out of town, you show them all the sights, and they want to see all the things that you... And, and you're just trying to show them a good time, and you have no idea where you're going or what to do because you don't ever go there. And so this is, this, is, this is how I feel sometimes. And then, you know, we'll be in downtown Raleigh, and they'll have the nerve to ask about some statue. Like, who is that? What did they do? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. And I, don't, I, 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 I should care, but, like, I, I'm hungry. And so we're trying to get to the restaurant, and you're asking me superfluous questions. And so uh, in their minds... The people who actually made it to become statues or were honored by monuments, those are the folks that were doing it in their day. They're the ones who made it. They made a name for themselves. Their, their legacy is living on at, as a statue in downtown Raleigh. But the reality is that for the majority of us, these statues are just for a place for the birds to come land and, and poop. We don't know their names. And many of us don't even care. I'll bring this closer to home. Many of us couldn't name all of our great-great-grandparents. And I'll even bring it closer to home is that our names, no matter what we do, are quickly forgotten. And so the idea of a name is central in today's narrative. In, in a genealogy in chapter 10, it's comprised of names. And then according to those who are building the Tower of Babel, they were doing so to make a name for themselves. And at the end of uh, chapter uh, of the, of the, of the uh, text today, they're actually given a name. And so after all this business about names, even if there's a statue erected in your honor, there's only one name that endures forever, and we know whose name that is, and his name is Jesus. So Genesis chapters 10 and 11 are comprised of a single genealogy that's broken up by the Tower of Babel, and these chapters are meant to be read together. And so working through these passages, it, they, they, they help us to understand the chronology when we look at them together, because if you read them carefully, you'll see that the Tower of Babel actually happens before the, uh, what happens in chapter 10. And this is not an error. This is not a reason to doubt the historicity of the text. The author does this intentionally to make a theological point. First of all, to tell us how and why the people were scattered, but most importantly, both parts of this genealogy in this week and next week's sermons end with the line of Shem, and it's through Shem's lineage that the Messiah would come. And so God is doing the work of saying, you know, the promise that I made to you in Genesis 3.15, the one where the one's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, yes, that dream is still alive. No matter what you've done, no matter your your rebellion, that dream is still alive. And so as as we set our sights on chapter 10, uh, I want you guys to know I was very excited about walking through this genealogy verse by verse, name by name, 
and just doing the work. Uh, but the reality is, after I spent a couple hours in it, I said, that's not going to be possible. So uh, I, I, I toyed with, like, you know, canceling this first, the, the first service and the 11 o'clock service, having one, like, big three-and-a-half-hour service with all the church out in the baseball field uh, so we can fit it all in, tell you how all these names fit together in the biblical story. But we didn't. So we're still here. So what I'm going to try to do is to try to give you some big ideas to help you as you can read the, 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 the genealogy name by name on your own, but to give you a little bit of, of help with, these, with, these, uh, with, this, with, these, with the big ideas that are being emphasized here. So uh, number one, the first thing is the symbolism of the 70. And so there are exactly 70 nations represented in this gene, genealogy. And like several other biblical passages or genealogies, the lists are not exhaustive, they're more symbolic. But understand that these are actual people and they're real names, but they're here included in this passage to make a larger point. And the number 70, it represents completion or fullness. And so we also see this with, the 70, with 70 of Jacob's uh, offspring that were mentioned. They descended on Egypt, meaning that everybody went. We also see that Israel was represented by 70 elders during the wilderness wanderings, indicating that uh, the whole nation was represented in its leadership. And then most significantly, we just studied this uh, a couple months ago, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out 70 to continue the work of gathering the nations to himself. And so this is, this is important today. So we're seeing that the, in today's genealogy, 70 is used because it makes it clear that all of humanity is in view. All of humanity was erased besides this one family, and then now we have this genealogy beginning with Noah and his sons, and it's talking about the whole world is in view. And it's not just Israel, it's the whole world. Israel is through whom the Messiah would come, but the whole world is the, the beneficiary of that blessing. You guys with me? Okay, so that's the first point. The symbolism of the 70. The second one is Abraham's commissioning and so at the conclusion of this genealogy, Abraham was called and commissioned to all the families or all the nations represented in this genealogy, and so that they might be blessed. And so this is in chapter 12, but it's really the climactic moment that the first, that this sort of, uh, this beginning history of Genesis is pointing us towards. And then thirdly, throughout the genealogy, there are several historical notes and each of these are a reference to particular events recorded in the book of Genesis. And so, for example, there's a note about Nimrod in verses 8 to 10, and his kingdom in Babylon, it provides the initial context for the Tower of Babel. And so, uh, without further ado, you got your three points to help you as you go do your devotions in the genealogy. Uh, and now we can turn to the, the fuller context of what we see in verse 10, discussing the Tower of Babel. And so as we look at verse 11, uh, verses 1 through 9, the main, the, the, the main point is this. God gives mercy to all nations despite their rebellion. This is the main point of, of verses 1 to 9, and even chapter 10 as well. God gives mercy to all nations despite their rebellion. So chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, they give us a setup for the story. And it says this. It says, Now the whole earth had one language, in the, in the same words, and, the, and, and, as, and as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. So there's a couple of details in these first two verses that are very helpful. Uh, 
Initially, I sped by, verse 1, about the whole earth having one language in the same words, but this became very significant because that's a big deal. It's easy to communicate when you not only have the same language, but also the same words. Many of you guys know that I'm not from the South. Born in Chicago, raised in California, spent some time in Ohio for college, came down here, and then I remember the first time someone told me to cut it on. And I said, well, when you cut something, it comes off not on, so what are you talking about? And so I had to, they said, cut it on. And I'm like, I, it doesn't work that way. You, you, you cut it off. And so, so, uh, and so what they were saying is to turn the light on. And so, you know, we had the same language, but different words. Also, the word supper. I still don't know what it is. <laughs> I thought dinner was just fine. All I know is that it's a meal that happens between lunch and sleep. And so... Uh, yeah, so supper, same language but different words. And for all the kids in the room who watch Bluey, uh, you know what a nappy is, don't you? You can put your parents up on that. It's a diaper. You know, but before, before we know it, Bluey's going to have our kids uh, speaking the Queen's English. And so it, it'll make us sound a lot more smart. But all I have to say, it's the, it's the they're speaking, we have the same language, but we do have different words at times. So that's, that's one thing. Same language, same words. But also another detail that's important is that they migrated from the east. And so this verse captures a theme that Moses, the author of Genesis, established and carries throughout the whole book. The theme is that they're moving or migrating east. It symbolized the assertion of human will over God's plan. The idea of moving east symbolizes the assertion of human will over God's plan. And this is a theme that we see when Adam and Eve, they chose uh, the knowledge of good and evil, evil over God's presence. They settled in a land east of Eden. Cain killed his brother Abel, and he went to, land, to a land uh, east of the garden. Lot and, uh, and, and Abraham, they disbanded, and then he sought a land like Eden towards the east. And so the language of, of going east negatively foreshadows all that happens in the rest of our passage today. And so let's explore exactly what happened in verses 3 and 4 that chronicle, chronicles the people's rebellion. Verse 3 says this, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So there's this, these two verses, they contain four little bits of information that comprise two aspirations. The first aspiration is to build a tower to make a name for themselves, and the second aspiration is to build a city so that they won't be scattered across the face of the whole earth. So let's look at that first one. Let us build a tower reaching to the heavens, heavens to make a name for ourselves. So it's easy for us to look down on these people in this plain of the land of Shinar because they're building this sort of monument or shrine to themselves. Today we do the same thing, but it's a bit more subtle because we're not building physical buildings all the time or physical idols all the time. What we are doing is building our brand. We are building our social media towers that reach unto the heavens to make a name for ourselves. And in fact, you know, at least at this time, they're doing it collectively. Today, we do this as individuals. We build our individual towers where we are the celebrity. Hey, everybody, look at me. Look at what I can do. And we measure our success by our followers and our likes. This is so, so shallow. 
and hollow. But I get it. We love recognition. We love it when we, when we make the grade. We love it when we achieve that image that we want to uh, uh, portray to everybody. We love it when we have the well-behaved children or when we win the parent comparison race, if we make the team or if we get the promotion. And even for uh, godly things, like my growth group is the one that's growing right now. The Bible study I'm leading is growing right now. Look, look at what God is doing through me. Look at all that God has done and check out who he's used to do it. A little asterisk with your name by it. Human praise comforts us. It grants us belonging in elite circles, even elite Christian circles at times. It makes us feel good when uh, parts of our life are falling apart. When we get the praise from others, everything can be in shambles, but you still have that praise. It grants us purpose when we're wayward from the, from the purposes of God. So there's nothing wrong with doing something good. And in fact, I think Christians have the best motivation to do everything great. But my hope is that believers would be the best at uh, what they put their hand to, but we would do it in a way that gives glory to God. The problem is not innovation or dreaming. It's, it's there and our motive for doing so. They made a plan, and they only included God at the back end of it so that God can bless it. You guys see that? Hey, God, come and, come and be a part of what I'm doing. Hey, don't be involved in shaping it. Just bless it on the end. Put a little bit of that, that blessing dust on it and so, so you can make much of it, right? So this is, this is how they wanted God to interact with them. And the fact is, the God who would do that, that would bless whatever they did, would be more like them than the actual God of the Bible. So at the end of the day, we all, to some degree, want to make a name for ourselves. We want greater value attached to our names, and so we name drop, we flaunt our titles, and we associate ourselves with greatness because we want that greatness to be attached to us. But the reality is this. When people admire you, what good is it? What good is it, what good is it for your admirers to admire you? Even the people in this world that I love the most, I will unfortunately let down. What good is it for, for them to see me as the ultimate when I will unfortunately fail them? So this is, this is the question we have to ask. We are dead ends. And you'll, you'll, you'll have to uh, just understand that fact. You'll even let them down, the ones you love the most. Our job is not to absorb the praise of others, but it's to redirect them to one, the one whom praise is due, and that is King Jesus. John Piper says it this way. He says, God is the, is the uh, one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the most loving act. Uh, anyone else who exalts himself or herself distracts us from what we need, namely God, you are hurting people if you absorb that praise. You are wounding people if you are distracting them from the one who can actually help them. We should never, ever just absorb that praise. We ought to point people to God, not distract them from him. Self-glorification is often a dead end. I don't know how many stories I've I've read about people who have, uh, who have made a name for themselves. They've achieved it. They reached the goal, and they found out it was so hollow. They end up resorting to drugs and alcohol and self-harm because they've reached the goal, and they found out at the very end of it, all they're left with 
is themselves. And they've hollowed themselves out, sacrificed themselves to reach the goal, and they're just left there by themselves. All they have to show for it is that their name. And again, our name is not the one that should be hollowed and held high. So while I understand how easy it is to get wrapped up in our accomplishments, the moment our identity becomes wrapped up in what we do and not who we are, it's an impediment to our own joy. And the second we understand that, it's a key to opening up joy in life, y'all. When what we, our name is wrapped up in what we do and not who we are as God's children. So that's the first aspiration, to build a tower, to make a name for ourselves. And the second aspiration is let's build a city so we will not be scattered over the whole earth. And so God's plan from the beginning was for his glory to be declared throughout the whole earth. And, and we see this from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, and verse 28, it says, be fruitful and multiply. Well, what would happen there? Well, everyone would have children, and then in the garden, everything would be perfect, so worshipers will abound, and as the population increased, the garden would spread, and the glory of God will be, uh, uh, expand the entire earth. We also know that in our series, we see that, yes, there's Genesis chapter 1, but there's Genesis chapter 3, and there's the fall, and it got so wicked that God was so grieved with his creation that he cleansed the earth with the flood. And right after the flood, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, he says to Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply. The same thing. Why? Because if they raise their children and the fear and the admonition of the Lord, worshipers of God would proliferate would spread across the whole earth. So we have, like even in Genesis, the glory of God was intended to be scattered across the face of the whole earth. The Great Commission passages in the, in the Gospels bear this out. Acts 1.8 does the same thing. We see in the book of Acts that the glory of God is spread by the power of the Holy Spirit through the church. And so, um, I, and I can keep going on and on, y'all, but they chose to, as we often do, their self-interested aspirations over the mission of God. They said, we're not going to go take the glory of God everywhere. We're going to sit here. We're going to wall ourselves off. We're going to build a city. Uh, for many of us, we don't understand the significance of this because, you know, you might have come from Roseville or Wake Forest or Garner or Durham or Cary to come to church today, and you crossed the border of a, of a city and didn't even know it. It was very different at this time. You'll build an edifice around the city to keep some in and to keep many out. It was protection from intermingling, intermingling with others, few entry and few exit points. And so we have to understand that this activity is antithetical to what God's plan was from the beginning. And the problem is, is that this security that they get from this, this, this wall is a myth. The psalmist raises the, the appropriate question from where does our help come? He answers the question, our help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Sickness, disaster, and death, they don't care how much money you have. That doesn't care how many followers on social media you have. When it comes, because it will, where will you stand during that storm? On the solid rock of Christ or on your self-made name? Which one's going to help you? It is the name of Jesus that is going to uplift you. The power of the Holy Spirit will indwell you for those who are in Christ and will carry you. Your brothers and sisters will be beside you, carrying you through difficult times. Where are you going to turn? You are not enough. 
And so now after reading about the people's rebellion with the tower that mirrors our own rebellion in the city that they built, God enters the picture and he, and he offers the people mercy. So this is, divine mercy is the, the heading over these last couple of verses, and we'll work through them slowly verse by verse, but uh, suffice it to say, the literary structure of this passage lets us know that verse 5 is a climax of these nine verses, and for those of you who are interested, that's a chiastic structure that this is the tip of, and so verse 5, it says this, and the, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So for those of you guys who think the Bible is just like a very stoic book with no sense of humor, this is actually kind of funny. They set out to build a tower with its top into the heavens. And the God who sees all and knows all says that he came down to see the tower that they were building. This is irony, y'all. You guys seeing this? And so it's basically saying, how badly have you failed at your God-sized tasks? They'd fallen miserably short to the fact that God had to stoop down and see how pathetic that little tower was. And so, but, and, and, and I think it's important for us to understand, like, we think we're doing something down here. We think that we're, you know, building these towers and these things that are, people are going to write about in the annals of history, and God is, like, stooping down, like, what you trying to do? Looking at us like we're crazy, because we acting crazy. Because we know the scripture tells, and by the way, I know you're not crazy. We're just sinful. And this is why we have a savior. So if it feels like I'm beating you up. I'm just, we're all in the same boat here, right? And God has to stoop down to see these little puny things that we're doing to say, look, you're not it. I am. And so let's move on to verse six when it talks about the uniqueness of, of humanity. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will be impossible for them. And so let's face it, uh, th there were some good things happening, right? They were unified, they had technological advancement, they, were, they had come together in a city, but uh, earlier this year I visited one of our church planners in Baltimore, and he said, and in the city the best and the worst of humanity is supercharged. And so in the city, you have different people with various gifts from all over the world coming together to do things together that they can never do in their own strength or ability. The problem is that God was not invited, and, the, and unity without God is just rebellion. So humans, image bearers, we have far more imaginative capabilities than any other thing that God has made. And so for me, like, I, I, love, I love cars, my son and I, we love German cars, BMWs, Audis, Mercedes. And uh, I was out behind one of my friend's parents' houses a couple weeks ago, and this BMW was like, boom, like speeding by. Like too fast, but you know, speeding by, because BMWs can do that. Uh, and, but here comes this deer, bow, and the deer just goes, boom. And I was like, oh no, the deer, oh no, the car, you know? So, but the point is that while deer are trying to figure out how to not get hit by cars, people is all of our ingenuity, we're flying to the moon, supposedly. <laughs> and, and, uh, and we're, <laughs> that's not me, like, weighing in, I'm just playing around. And so, uh, um, but we do perform heart transplants, and we do all kinds of other crazy stuff, because humanity is so much more powerful than 
any other creation. So, in short, with the geographic and linguistic unity uh, of humanity, it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, our collaboration can result in amazing technological advance. But on the other hand, that same ingenuity can be used to rebel against God and find new ways to destroy ourselves and each other. Let's, let's see what God does in response to this in verses 7 and 8. It says, Come, let us, that's the divine we, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Is anybody familiar with, with the concept of polarization or mob mentality? So, um, I, you know, I mentioned this before, but I grew up in California for the most part, and then I went to school in Ohio, and it's cold there. Uh, all I had to, be pre to prepare for winter was a hoodie that a friend left at my house that I took to college. I couldn't imagine how it would get less than like 45 degrees, because I just physically couldn't get my mind around it. So, um, but everyone who was really smart at Cedarville University, where I went to school, they were engineers. And so one day, it was a, a cold and snowy day on the third floor of Brock Hall at Cedarville University, and these uh, nerdy engineers, they were sitting there doing their calculus or whatever engineers do. I don't know what they do. They just do equations and stuff. Now they, they type them out, I guess, these days. I know we got some engineers. Pastor Matt, you're, these are your people. And so, um, <laughs> and uh, they're sitting there doing their thing, typing or writing, and then the calculators and stuff. And then they're like, one roommate looked at the other. By my calculation, <laughs> I think you can jump out of the window into the snowbank and be okay. So we're in the south. A snowbank is when a building stands up, the wind blows the snow, it hits the ground, and it like piles up. So like on the first floor, there was so much snow, you open a window, you like look out the window, you can't see anything because the snowbank is so high. And so these these engineers, like this guy who was really smart and this other guy who was really smart, they were talking about it. And then one, you know, college guy's walking by after brushing his teeth or something. He's like, you're going to jump out the window into the snowbank? And that one guy turns into three, and that three guy turns into five, and that five guy turns into like 15. And like then you hear them saying what you never want like a bunch of like young 20-year-old guys to, to, to chant, do it, do it, do it. And so the, the, uh, the university is smart understands the nature of young men so they hire like a real adult called a resident director to like live like in the building to like disrupt these kinds of things so he hears the chant he bolts upstairs and he says everybody go to your room and this dude who was like really smart like kind of came back to his senses it's like he was in a daze and then he like sits on his bed he's like what got into me and then this is the thing when he scattered them, it was an act of grace. And that's exactly what we see here. When God scatters them, it's an act of grace to them. They hopefully they came to their senses, and we do the same sort of mob mentality type thing on social media where we all weigh in, disembodied, where, where we all just do all kinds of crazy stuff. But we need to be scattered and sent to our rooms in this diversity of language and culture. It begets humility into all of us. 
Not one culture has a corner on faithfulness to Christ. Not, not one culture has it all together. We can all learn from each other and things like that. And a, a, another really important point of application is that we can all look back in our own lives and see the towers that by God's grace, he did not let us finish. Think of that this week. What were you trying to do that would have been akin to a tower of Babel that God scattered you from so you would not finish it? This is an act of grace to you. The benefits of scattering are that God removes us from old temptation patterns. He destroys the idol of comfort. He removes typical distractions from God's best. But what we understand as well is that God does scatter, but when God scatters, he's not finished with us. Isn't that good news? That when God has to discipline us, when he sends us, sends us around the face of the whole earth or whatever he does to get us out of those patterns, God is not done with us. He's a God of grace as well. And so we see that God's glory shines more brightly, even in the face of scattering. We see that the, the Lord is the universal reigning Lord. That every, he's Lord over everyone, despite their languages and ethnicities and cultures. He is Lord over all. So God's glory is still shining despite all of this. And finally, we see in verse 9, they receive a name. It says, therefore, its name was called Babel, because, because there the Lord confused the language of, the, of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So the whole time these people were working, laboring to receive a name, and they finally got one. Babel. This is not the name that they were hoping for. This is a disgraceful description of their failed quest to, to make a name for themselves. And I have to ask us, and even myself, uh, whose name do you carry? When you meet somebody, is it, is it that your aspiration that they would walk away thinking, oh, that guy or that girl is awesome? And they want to go and check out your social media handles, they want to check you out on LinkedIn, they want to check out what you're doing in your life? Or is it that your goal that when somebody meets you, they say, how awesome is his or her Savior? Are we absorbing the praise? Or are we redirecting them to the one who's actually worthy of it? So as we're scattered, this is what we need to do. So now as we close, like the, the aftermath of scattering, some concluding thoughts. One, we have, we have to never forget divine restoration. And I mentioned this a moment ago, but I think we should just be very clear about this. God scatters, but he always restores. We see this with Adam and Eve when they sinned. God clothed them, and he promised them a redeemer. And in this story, we see that uh, it, it sort of climaxes in chapter 12 when uh, they, there's this redemptive scattering, this commissioning of Abraham or Abram at the time and his descendants to be blessed to be a blessing. And so I think it's important for us to read those verses together. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, which is later Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, and him who on, dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So as a redeemed in Christ, we no longer carry any name uh, besides the name of Jesus. All the disgraceful names that we might have picked up along the way as we made, had this quest to make a, something out of ourselves, they, they, long, they no longer hold anymore. We simply carry the name of Jesus. So we have to understand that, yes, divine restoration, and then also God uh, restores our identity. 
Restored identity is also a part of this. For many of us, we failed so profoundly at contriving an identity for ourselves, and our identity has become entangled with sin that we think that we've become the sin that we struggle with. That is not the case. You are not your failures. And I love how Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says this, Such were some of you. You are no longer those things. Don't let the devil lie to you saying, You are what you used to be. You're not. You are a new creation. We have a new identity. He says, you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. We are no longer our failures. We're His. And that's such good news for all of us today. The redeemed carry the name of Jesus, not our failures. And so, at the end of the day, we are simply jars of clay carrying this message of hope. And, you're, and, and that's your identity hidden in Christ. And then thirdly, restored mission. Some of us need to be scattered today. The good news is that God often scattered us, scatters us in order to refocus us missionally. So if you are uh, fighting sin today, if, you're, uh, if you have a misconstrued identity, or if you're wondering what will happen to you if you get laid off from your job and the cuts that are going on, it's okay. God, God, God can use all of those things, as broken as they are, to refocus you on the primary thing, which is his mission. So God is, is saying, hey, I, I've been at this restoration business for a long time. After Babel, we have uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Abraham and his family. Uh, we have in Acts chapter 2, the reversal of the languages, that we see that God is working to bring everyone back to him. The, 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 uh, at Pentecost, everyone heard the gospel in their own language. And then in Revelation 5 and 7, we see that the, uh, the people are there worshiping the Lord from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, worshiping our king. This is our mission, to help see that to fruition. That actually rhymed, y'all. That wasn't, that wasn't in here. I just, that was free. So it's so important for us to be, to, to be reminded that if God is scattering us, if he's taking us out of patterns, if he's, if, he, if he's upsetting these towers that we're building, that he could be refocusing us on what is primary, and that is himself and his mission and his glory throughout the world. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I invite you to, uh, to meet the one whose burden is light. I, I'm sure that many of us, we're, we're scrapping and scraping, trying to make a name for ourselves, trying to get promoted, trying to get recognition, trying to do all these things, but, and that's such a burden on us. And the reality is that you'll never achieve it. And if you do, you might be rewarded with a statue in North Hills, and the birds will tell you exactly how much that statue is worth. <laughs> so let the Lord Jesus make you new. All of our aspirations are just so hollow and distractions from the one who will actually bring us joy. And so you have to admit that you are a sinner, that you have transgressed God's plan for your life that we see in the scripture. You've not, there's a God of the universe that exists and he's good and he's righteous and his plan is for our benefit and we've not done that. That's sin. And you have to believe that Jesus Christ is the one who has died for your sins, rose from the dead, because you couldn't do it for yourself, and that, then confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and then you will be saved. 
And then that yoke that you've been carrying of trying to make something of yourself, pulling yourselves up by your own bootstraps, aren't you tired? Aren't you sick of this? He will have you. Give it all to him. And he'll take it and he'll make you new. And he'll restore your identity. He'll give you a new name. And he'll give you something that's worth living for, which is his glory and his glory alone. And also for those who are in Christ today, uh, let's, be, let's be recommissioned this morning. Let's be sent out into our families, into our neighborhoods, in our vocational spaces, into our, you know, all these places that we go, remembering that we are the ones who have been recipients of grace. We're not the grace givers. So let's make much of his name and not much of ourselves, because that's what we are here to do, to make much of our Savior. And that's my prayer for each and every one of us, that the name that people will recognize and remember after they meet us is not our own, but our Savior's. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us to remind us of your grandeur this morning, how big you are, how powerful you are, how, how majestic you are, and then how feeble our attempts are to mimic you. God, help us to see that the, if, if there's anything in our lives that amount to a tower, that we want to reach the heavens but just fails, and pales in comparison to your glory. So God, I, I pray that you would be merciful to us as you were to the people in the plain of Shinar, showing us the error of our ways, not just to leave us destitute and beat up and uh, wondering what's next, but showing us the way of redemption through Christ. So God, we thank you for being a God of mercy. We thank you for being a God who saves. We thank you for being a God of justice who took on uh, the justice of our sort of uh, injustice towards you on the cross. And so, God, we thank you for that. And so be with us, God, as we are the ones who try to proclaim the name of our Savior to a broken and dying world. Rescatter us this week, we ask. In your name, amen.